At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. This is Jeff Hogue, and welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 20, The Two Germanys, 1945 to 1953. So I know that we've spoken about Germany on and off uh, throughout the series so far, but I believe that it was important to have an episode specifically focused on Germany, given the important role Germany played in causing and in shaping the early Cold War. For regular listeners, uh, we'll be covering some information that we've highlighted in past episodes. However, there will be some new information that we haven't spoken about before and other aspects we haven't spoken about in depth. Politically, Germany had directly set off two world wars in the 20th century and quickly became the front in the new Cold War struggle. Philosophically, Germany contributed greatly to both Marxism, as Marx was born in Germany, and to the modernization theory, uh, two of the competing ideologies of the Cold War. Technologically as well, Germany developed many concepts uh, such as rocketry, submarine warfare, and mechanized blitzkrieg, which all greatly affected Cold War concepts around warfare. Germany was also seen as a great prize for socialism. Both Marx and Engels had been born there, and it was the site of the failed communist uprisings of of 1919 and the early 1920s. The division of Germany symbolically embodied the Cold War as well as its punishment for World War II and the Holocaust. The four-power occupation worked in Austria because of the smaller stakes, a moderate socialist government, and the fact that they were the first victims of Hitler. The more populous and rich Germany was another story. After the fall of the Nazis, Germany lacked a central government, and the occupiers could establish rival ideological states in their respective zones. In the east, the Soviets created a worker state, and in the west, the Allies established a liberal market state with a democratic government. Both regimes represented the two opposing camps in the Cold War, each claiming to be the legitimate government of Germany, mirroring the larger struggle. Germany, for most of its early history, was composed of many small states and principalities, and for close to 200 years, from the Thirty Years' War in 1618 to the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, Germany was the principal battlefield of Europe, as European armies from France, Sweden, Russia, and others marched across its fields to wage war. Along the way, thousands of Germans died as these struggles tore apart the German countryside. By the mid-19th century, many Germans began to call for a united Germany to defend against this from happening again. Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor of Prussia, achieved this task by forging a united Germany through political cunning and war proclaiming Germany in the Hall of Mirrors in 1871 at the Palace of Versailles in humiliation of the French. This, along with the German annexation of Alsace and Lorraine, two French provinces, would cause bitter feelings with the French, uh, which explains their vindictiveness at the Versailles Peace Treaty in 1919. 
This hard peace with its painful reparations contributed to the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s in the outbreak of the Second World War, as Hitler tried to recapture lands that the Germans had lost in 1918. During the Second World War, the Allies had initially agreed that Germany would be divided again into smaller states after the war, with some even wishing to strip Germany of all of its industry, making it a collective of small agrarian states. France continued to call for the dismemberment of Germany through 1947. However, at Yalta, the Allies changed their position. Stalin wanted Germany to pay $20 billion in reparations, or about $270 billion in today's money, half of which would go to the Soviet Union. German industry would be dismantled and sent to the Soviet Union as payment. After that, Germany would pay reparations in goods for another 10 years. Roosevelt and Churchill accepted the premise that the Soviets deserved reparations, but they felt that the 20 billion mark was too high. They didn't want to have to cover Germany's war debts as they had after World War I, and they especially didn't want to lend any more money to the Soviet Union, whom they had already loaned 6 billion during the war. Stalin became enraged the Allies would not agree and reminded them of the sacrifices that the Soviets had made during the war, but the Allies could not come to an agreement on reparations. Another issue of contention between the Allies was Poland. Great Britain and the United States had deep interest in post-war Poland and had issues with Stalin's occupation of the country. Stalin wanted to push Poland's borders west into former German territory to offset his conquest of Poland's eastern territory, which he had taken in 1939. This was a hard pill for the British to swallow, given that they had begun the Second World War to protect Polish territorial integrity. 200,000 Poles had also served valiantly under British command, and the Poles had helped to break the German Enigma Code, which aided the Allies in winning the Second World War. Roosevelt was keen to keep the support of 5 million Polish-American voters who voted solidly Democratic. Stalin promised free elections in Eastern Europe in exchange for the Allies recognizing the Soviet government in Warsaw and the new borders which redrew Germany and Poland. Stalin, though, underestimated that the Americans took treaties very seriously and felt bitterly wronged when Stalin didn't live up to his word. Although, to be fair, in the first two years after the war, only Yugoslavia and Albania became communist dictatorships as a result of indigenous Marxist movements with little help from Moscow. At Yalta, they also agreed that Germany and its capital would be divided between the three powers after the war was over as a temporary agreement until a new German government could be formed and the Allies could come to an agreement about the future of the state. Churchill proposed to give France a part of Germany to administer after the war as well, which would come out of the British and American zones. The British did not wish to be left alone in Germany after the Americans withdrew in two years, as the Americans had proposed. Therefore, France could help offset the Soviet presence once the Americans left. But the British failed to see the consequences of this decision. France, in the end, was a nuisance to Britain and the United States and agreed more with the Soviet Union when it came to Germany than with the Allies. As the war ended, the Soviets systematically plundered Eastern Europe. Under the guise of reparations payments, the plunder included everything from industrial equipment, artwork, historical documents, and household goods like clocks, shoes, and silverware, all shipped east in boxcars or as stolen items in the pockets or bread bags of Soviet soldiers. This infuriated the Allies, especially Truman, as FDR had, had died in uh, that April. The Soviets were plundering Poland, who was a friendly state. Molotov, however, argued that this was not reparations but war booty and was acceptable. 
The Allies were also displeased that Stalin was giving German territory to Poland and that the Germans were not being compensated as they believed the value of the land should count against the reparations that the Germans would owe the Allies. The Allies, in response, had been paying the Soviets reparations out of their zone of Germany as well, but believed it was weakening their zones too much and in 1946 stopped sending the Soviets reparations payments especially as the Soviets had stopped food shipments from eastern Germany to the west. Like the rest of Europe after the end of World War II, Germany was devastated. Germany lost on the order of 5.3 to 4.4 million dead and missing. There is some disagreement as to the actual number. Another 11 million Germans became prisoner of war, of whom an estimated million would perish in Soviet captivity. Civilian casualties numbered around 350 to 500,000 who died as a result of Allied bombing, and another 500,000 to 2 million that died as a result of Allied, the Allied invasion of Germany, primarily those in eastern Germany where the Soviets showed little mercy. This was compounded by another 300,000 German Jews, political enemies, and undesirables who had been eliminated by the Nazi regime. Moreover, it should be noted that Germany had suffered another 2 million casualties only roughly 30 years before in the First World War. Germany also had roughly 3.6 million refugees from former German territory, which had been confiscated by, Pol by Poland and Czechoslovakia as well. Economically, Germany was virtually leveled. Its major cities had been turned to rubble. An estimated 20 million people were rendered homeless as a result of the war. In West Germany, bombing had destroyed 5 million houses and apartments. People lived in cellars, ruins, and literally holes dug into the ground. In most places, essential services like gas, san sanitation, water, and electricity had broken down for millions. Complicating the situation further, an estimated 4.8 million German citizens were internally displaced or refugees. Many had tried to escape the major cities, which had been bombed around the clock or as evacuees as they escaped the advance of the Red Army, which brutally murdered, robbed, assaulted, and raped the German population in its advance. Just like the rest of Europe, famine had become a major problem. Food production in Germany was only two-thirds of the pre-war levels in 1946-1948. Cleric intake averaged just 1,550 per day, and 60% of that was from potatoes and bread, even though the average adult requires 2,500 calories, most of which is not supposed to be composed of starches like potatoes and bread. Because of this destruction, German society started to fall apart. Many women turned to prostitution or selling their body for food. It's common to see post-war pictures or movies of German women with British Tommies or American GI boyfriends, but many did this out of necessity and not necessarily love. Moreover, it wasn't just young women interested in Allied soldiers. Middle-aged and or married women would also think nothing of selling their bodies for some sea rations or cigarettes. Pimps and black marketeers thrived, offering fake brandy, pornography, and child prostitution as young as 10. Children in general during this period suffered greatly. They themselves were caught up in the sex trade, selling their own bodies, and it was not uncommon for brothers to pimp their own sisters. Children also lived in a dangerous physical environment. Old munitions, weapons, and landmine fields littered Germany, killing children on a daily basis. Theft and looting had also become endemic as well. Theft had become so common that it was normal and ceased to be regarded as a crime. Allied supplies were stolen regularly, as things like food, cigarettes, and candy bars were sold in the black market. 
Post-war Berlin, per one historian, became the crime capital of the world with 2,000 arrests a month. Many Germans were forced into the black market because they needed to survive. Prices had soared far above wages, and many Germans found that it was impractical to work. A non-skilled worker at best could make 160 marks in a month, which would purchase little more than some black bread. Many people, such as university lecturers, were not even paid in money but foodstuffs. The black market came to consume some 40% of Germany's domestic agriculture. Overall, 50 to 60% of the German population in the Western sector participated in the black market. People were understandably reluctant to work when their pay was virtually worthless. Therefore, people devoted most of their time and energy to acquiring, stealing, or hoarding anything of real value in order to trade it on the black market. After the war, Germany was divided into four regions, administered by each of the victorious great powers. The Americans and the Soviets both ruled over the two largest zones, with about 17 million people each. The British ruled the smaller uh, northwest zone of Germany with the prized industrial heart of Germany, the Ruhr Valley, with over 22 million people. The French were given the smallest occupation zone with a little over 5 million people. Despite its lack of, of industry in the zone, uh, it did have its advantages. It had the fewest refugees and could feed itself. The Allies formed the Allied Control Council as a governing body, with each government represented by a senior military official to administer the country and to coordinate the different zones. Each Allied military commander would administer their region of Germany independently, but would cooperate through the Council on issues that affected the country as a whole. The city of Berlin, like Germany, was also divided after the war into four zones, with each of the, city of the respective powers occupying part of the city. Despite Soviet and Allied cooperation during the war, they disagreed bitterly about many aspects of post-war Germany and the administration of the German capital, Berlin. As we spoke about in Episode 4, the Soviets wanted to create a security zone in Eastern and Central Europe of friendly Marxist states to guard against the possibility of future invasion. Russia had been invaded twice in the last 30 years at the cost of roughly 23,394,000 lives and an estimated 2.6 trillion rubles in damage. The Soviet elites wanted to see Germany pay for the destruction they had brought on the Soviet Union. Stalin, however, had multiple and competing objectives when it came to Germany, and there is a lot of historical debate as to what his primary goal was. Stalin believed that Germany would reconstitute itself again as strong as ever in 20 years, just as Germany had post-World War I. Therefore, Stalin saw Germany developing along one of four roads. The best outcome for the Soviets would be a socialist Germany in the heart of Europe. The second best option was for a neutral socialist Germany, like Finland, not an ally but in the Soviet sphere of influence. The third option was a truly neutral Germany outside of either camp. Not the ideal situation, but Poland would still be a buffer, a buffer unlike in 1941. Finally, the worst-case scenario was a powerful capitalist Germany in the Western camp. Therefore, Stalin wanted to achieve the first outcome, but would settle for option two or three if possible. The Soviets administered their zone through a combination of the East German communist and a Soviet military government known as SMAG, responsible directly to Stalin himself. By 1946, SMAG had become a huge, sprawling bureaucracy with 4,000 officers who had powers and privileges beyond what a Soviet official might receive back home. Their pay was double, and they enjoyed a higher standard of living. 
The Soviet zone of occupation in East Germany had fewer assets beyond a roughly a thousand factories and the Saxon uranium mines we spoke about in episode 17, and some low-quality brown coal fields. Therefore, a united Germany would give Stalin access to the valuable Ruhr Valley and potentially a place a socialist state at the heart of Europe with the ability to influence politics in Scandinavia, Italy, and France. Stalin believed that to achieve this, the Soviets would have to win popularity with the German people. Therefore, Stalin ordered the remnants of the German Communist Party to work with the German Socialist Party to rebuild Germany. However, the German Socialist Party and its leader, Kurt Schumer, uh, who had spent the war in a Nazi concentration camp, felt he owed the Soviets and communists nothing and refused to unite the two parties. Stalin also tried to appeal to nationalist tendencies in Germany by recruiting former Nazis into the ranks of the German Communist Party and to work with them as he felt that they might retain some popularity amongst the German people and help the Soviets in rebuilding a neutral Germany. Walter Ulbricht quickly became the main point man for the German Communist Party. He had come up through the ranks of the, of the party in the 1920s, uh, fleeing Germany when Hitler came to power, traveling to France, and then to Spain, where he fought in the Spanish Civil War. He then traveled to Moscow, where he became a Soviet citizen and spent most of World War II as a member of the Comintern. He wasn't a very charismatic or popular figure, but he understood power and how to achieve control. The German communists quickly established themselves in the Soviet zone of East Germany, setting up local offices, newspapers, radio stations, and book publishers. They dismissed and blacklisted high-level Nazis, uh, but they did not go as far as the Americans in denazification. Mid-level bureaucrats of the Nazi G Germany soon found work in the ranks of the German Communist Party. To help build this new socialist state in Germany and to gain the Soviets and German communist popularity, the Soviets announced massive land reform in their zone. The vast estates of the Junker nobility were broken up and given to half a million farmers, which did prove to be popular despite the fall in agricultural production. They then proceeded with nationalizing industry in the Soviet zone. By 1946, private ownership of industry was ended. However, despite the goal of building up a socialist state in Germany, Stalin had another overriding objective, which was rebuilding the Soviet Union's industrial capacity as quickly as possible. Part of the way the Soviets planned to do this was by stripping Eastern Europe and especially Germany of its industry and sending it back to the Soviet Union. Of the roughly 1,000 factories in East Germany in 1945, they shipped 450 to the Soviet Union by 1946. The workers who were supposed to form the base of this new social state were infuriated. Moreover, they feared being conscripted into the uranium mines. This caused thousands to flee East Germany for the western zones, and in 1946, the Soviets already had to block migration from their zones to the west. More importantly, though, the Soviets failed to win popular support because of the brutal Soviet invasion and occupation of East Germany. An estimated 2 million German women were raped, sometimes repeatedly, by Soviet forces from the period of 1945 to 1947, causing the communists to have very low female support. They tried to confine Soviet troops to barracks in mid-1947 and decreed heavy punishments for rape in 1949, but the damage politically had already been done. Many women who had lost loved ones during Hitler's wars and suffered under the Nazi regime might have supported the Communist Party like elsewhere in Europe, but the Soviet occupation had pushed them into the arms of the German political right. Stalin also refused to let thousands of, of German POWs return home. 
and instead used them as slave labor to rebuild the Soviet Union. This again contributed greatly to popular discontent in Germany. The Soviets did try to offer more food to East Germany, and Stalin could have confiscated food in East Germany to alleviate the Soviet famine of 1946-1947, but he didn't on account that they thought it would be bad public relations. However, when a 1949 poll asked Germans if they trusted the Allies, 63% of Germans trusted the Americans to treat them fairly, 45% trusted the British to treat them fairly, 4% the French, and 0 the Soviets. The United States, in contrast, wanted to create an economically prosperous Eastern and Central Europe that was integrated into the world economy. The Americans believed that the breakdown of international trade had worsened the Great Depression in the 1930s and that these issues had created the geopolitical instability that led to the development of extreme politics in Germany, Japan, and Italy, which culminated in the Second World War. They believed that an economically prosperous and democratic Germany would be a peaceful Germany. Initially, the Americans planned to leave Germany in two years. The American plan for German occupation was called the four Ds, demilitarization, denazification, decentralization, and democratization. The U.S. stressed the point, however, that Germany was not a liberated country, but a defeated enemy state. The U.S. attitude towards Germany had hardened once they saw the horror of the Nazi concentration camps. Fraternization between Americans and German citizens was forbidden. Initially, but it was soon discovered that it was impossible to enforce and unrealistic if they were going to administer the country. The general in charge of the American occupation was Lucius Clay. Clay had been born in the American South and believed that the northern occupation of the South after the American Civil War had been traumatizing. Therefore, he didn't want to leave a similar legacy of resentment. He wanted to leave a foundation of friendship between the two peoples. Clay thoroughly followed the policy of denazification, removing even mid-level and lower-level ex-Nazis from public office. He also recruited Germans uh, with clean paths to help run the occupation. Many of these men were easy to find as they had been jailed by the Nazis. Having studied German history, Clay wanted to establish a federal system in Germany, similar to the American system, but which respected German traditions. Clay also instituted a free market in the American zone of Germany. The British, in their zone, established a centralized system of control with very little input from the local Germans and instituted a centrally planned economy for their sector. The Allies had agreed at Potsdam to sign a peace treaty with a new German government, but after rounds of meetings with the Soviets through 1946 and 1947, Marshall, Truman, Bevan, and others believed that they couldn't come to a final agreement with Stalin over the fate of Germany or Eastern Europe for that matter. They believed that Stalin was playing for time. The longer an agreement took to negotiate, the longer economic turmoil would rule Europe, meaning that the more popularity the Communist Party would gain, and hence more of Europe would go communist, directly working against the American goal of rebuilding a capitalist democratic Europe. It was well known that before the war, Germany was the economic heart of Europe. Europe was linked not only to the German coal mines and steel industries of the Ruhr, but also to Germany's chemical, electrical, and machine tool industries. Figures like George Kennan and Forrestal gained greater influence with Truman and pushed for a policy of containment, arguing an agreement with the Soviet Union was impossible. Therefore, the U.S. shouldn't allow the Soviets to gain any greater influence in Germany. Thus, the Americans agreed to act on Germany and Europe in general alone without the Soviet Union. 
First, the United States announced that they were prepared to stay in Europe indefinitely. They also announced the Marshall Plan. From the Soviet perspective, this was proof that the United States was trying to economically penetrate Eastern Europe and rebuild a capitalist imperial Germany, which would be a threat once more to the Soviet Union. The cost of the occupation was enormous on the Allies. It was estimated that the United States was spending $200 million a year to maintain the occupation and another $700 million between Britain and the United States to feed West Germany. The occupation was costly in other ways as well. American troops in 1946 were contracting venereal disease at a rate of about 306 cases per 1,000 men a month, or nearly one in three American soldiers in Europe. In one extraordinary unit of 1,000 men, more than 1,200 cases were reported in one month, meaning some soldiers were hardly cured of one infection before contracting another. American troops in Europe were also getting themselves killed in car accidents at 12 times the rate as in the United States. The occupation was costing so much because Germany was failing to recover from the war because Germany had been divided into four small economic zones, unable to trade with each other. The French and the Soviets were blocking any efforts by the Allies to reintegrate the German economy. The British zone contained most of Germany's traditional industries such as steel mills and coal mines. The American sector had within it many of Germany's advanced industries like chemical refineries and automobile manufacturers. These two regions naturally complemented one another, and a lack of coordination held back development in both, in, in both, so Britain and the United States agreed to merge their zones of occupation. The other major issue was the nearly worthless occupation mark, which was crippled by inflation. Without addressing this issue, it would be impossible to get the German people out of the black market and back to work. The Americans and British had come to the conclusion that if they wanted to restart the German economy, they would have to reform the money system. The Allies had developed an occupation currency, the occupation mark, in early 1945, but the Soviets overprinted the new currency, undercutting its value, and refused to tell the Allies how much they had printed. Therefore, the Americans and British wanted a currency just for their zones without Soviet participation. The new currency was printed in the United States and secretly beginning in October 1947 and shipped to Germany, secretly under armed guard where it was stored in bank vaults until a decision was reached on when to introduce it. The French, like the Soviets, had been invaded by the Germans three times in the last 70 years at a horrible cost. They wanted Germany to remain weak and broken, fearing a revived Germany. Naturally, the Soviets were opposed to the Americans and the British integrating their zones of occupation and reforming the German currency without Soviet participation. When news of the currency was released, along with the American and British intention to integrate their occupation zones, the Soviets were livid. In the Allied Control Council in January 1948, Marshal Zoklowski announced that the Soviet government saw these moves as a clear and gross violation of the previous inter-Allied agreements. The introduction of the new currency also increased the cost of the Soviet occupation in East Germany, as SMAG couldn't just print more occupation notes to pay for their expenses. The French, although they were opposed to rebuilding Germany, couldn't really stop the Americans and British for a couple of reasons. For one, the British and Americans had lost hundreds of thousands of men in both world wars to liberate France. Second, France was dependent on American aid to rebuild their nation and to retain their, their colony in Indochina. So despite their misgivings, they went along with the plan. The Soviets responded with the Berlin blockade, which we reviewed in episode 11. 
the suppression of the democratic parties in Eastern Europe and the communist parties taking to the streets in France and Italy. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. I also want to thank Kenny Hufford and Den Hendrickson for contributing to the show. Any contribution is greatly appreciated. So if you want to contact us, fill out our survey, or contribute to the show, go to our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. We greatly appreciate your support in helping to keep this show going. Now back to the show. The three allies, though, couldn't agree uh, on what type of government the new West German state should have, though. So they decided to let the Germans decide via a constitutional assembly in order to write a new German constitution. The Allies, of course, reserved the right to veto, but allowed the Germans to construct the outlines of their government. The Germans reacted somberly to the proposal, for they knew it meant a divided Germany, as the East would not participate in the process. In fact, the Socialists rejected the proposal initially, but German pragmatists prevailed, arguing half a country is better than no country. But they also agreed to not write a permanent constitution, but only a temporary document under which the state could function until a unification could be brought about. Therefore, the new governing document was called Basic Law, and not a constitution. In September 1948, a parliament met in Bonn to draft a new constitution. Bonn was chosen as a new capital because of its small size and as a temporary capital versus a great and ancient city like Frankfurt. The most important parties were the Christian Democrats, its sister party, the Bavarian Christian Social Union, and the Socialist Party. The new state had a strong federal structure with each of the German provinces, cities, and localities given their own significant powers. The Germans also wanted to show that the basic law came from the liberal democratic traditions of Germany dating back to 1848 and not from the Allied occupation rejecting the centralized system of the Second and Third Reichs. Learning from the Nazi experience, the new government did away with proportional representation and a powerful president, as they believed a fractured parliament and a powerful chief executive had contributed to the rise of Hitler. The new government would also require that a no-confidence vote to bring down the government had to be simultaneously elect a new government in its place forcing parties to take responsibility for their actions and not leaving the state with an ineffective government, which happened multiple times in the 1930s. Additionally, Article 23 was written for easy admission for German states that were not founding members, showing that they had not forgotten their brothers and sisters in the East and had endorsed German unification. The Allies, however, retained control of West Germany's foreign policy, defense, and held veto power over any decisions of the West German government and retained full control of West Berlin. Moreover, they reserved the right to reimpose their full authority as occupying powers in case of an emergency. On May 8, 1949, the Parliamentary Council approved the Basic Law by an overwhelming majority of 53 to 12, and within the next 10 days, it was ratified by all the German states except for Bavaria, who wanted more autonomy. The Allied powers also approved of the document, and the Basic Law went into effect on May the 23rd, and the Federal Republic of Germany was established. 
On August the 14th, elections were held, and Konrad Adenauer was elected the first chancellor. By one vote, he would be chancellor for the next 14 years. Adenauer had been mayor of Cologne from 1917 to 1933 until he was arrested for removing Nazi symbols from public places. The British didn't like him because he opposed the social welfare state and had refused to cut down trees for firewood as mayor after the war. But the Americans backed him, although Clay never found him very easy to work with. From Stalin's perspective, uh, these electoral defeats of the communist parties throughout Europe, including the free elections in Berlin, and the Allied efforts to merge their zones along with the Marshall Plan changed the dynamic. Stalin moved to establish friendly authoritarian Marxist states in Eastern Europe and East Germany now that the Allies were establishing a capitalist state in their zone. Moreover, leaving East Germany for the Soviets became harder as time passed. East Germany became a major hub for Soviet forces in Central Europe. Hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops were stationed there with supply depots and air bases, ready to rush at a moment's notice to the English Channel. The German Communist Party, or SED, took control of civilian administration by 1948, and the new East German state, the Democratic Republic, was established on October 7, 1949. The SED controlled the new government, uh, where it it controlled 210 of of the 330 seats in the East German Assembly. The remaining 120 seats were assigned to the remaining Christian Democrats and smaller parties. The GDR also established the Ministry for State Security, or the Strazi, uh, the notorious secret police. They did not report to the Politburo, but to Ulbricht personally, which gave him control of the party and thus the state, setting him up as a mini-Stalin in East Germany. Stalin, of course, indirectly brought about his greatest fear, a rearmed Germany, by giving Kim Il-sung the green light to invade South Korea. This decision would have reverberating effects around the world, including Germany. Ulbricht used the attack to highlight the impending victory of communism in the world and called for the liquidation of the West German government and cited Korea as an example of what could be done. Even before Ulbricht's statements, Soviet media cited Korea as an example of what would happen in Germany. The East Germans had launched a sizable rearmament program in East Germany as well. Some 30 East German factories were involved with building armaments, and the East German police were heavily armed. With American forces fighting in Korea, the United States feared a Soviet invasion of Western Europe, even more so, and it seemed irresponsible to not let the Germans defend themselves against the hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops massed on their borders. The West German Chancellor, Adenauer, had already begun to plan secretly the possibility of German rearmament. He wanted to join NATO because he decided that it would appease the fears of Germany's neighbors and it would gain Germany trust and show willingness to cooperate. Many on the German left, though, opposed this course of action. They feared the return of the Wehrmacht and feared the danger that it would pose to the young West German Republic. The German army, and before that the Prussian army, had been an authoritarian force in German politics for decades. The Americans wanted Germany to help bear some of the defense of its own country as well. Churchill proposed the creation of a European army, thus pooling European resources and eliminating the need of a German army, a concept which is still being talked about today. The Americans, although not opposed, were not excited about this plan because they feared that it would create a force outside of NATO. 
However, the Chinese entrance into the Korean War in November 1950 and the fear of the war spreading to Europe convinced France and other European nations to allow for limited German rearmament. In 1954, the new German army was renamed the Bundeswehr as the Allies wanted to clean uh, clean break with the old German military, the Wehrmacht. The new army lacked a general staff and was in many ways a purely defensive force. Stalin, however, tried one last time to achieve an agreement around uniting Germany under a neutral banner. In March 1952, he surprised the West by offering the Germans unity. Under the terms, a new German government would be established and a peace treaty would be signed with the Allies and Soviet Union. All occupation troops would withdraw. Germany would not enter any military alliance. Germany would also have to, uh, its own army to defend its territory, and Germany would have free access to the world markets. The Allies reacted coolly to the proposal. Many things had, had happened since 1945. The Czech coup, the Berlin blockade, the Korean War. The Americans nor the British really believed that Stalin was negotiating in good faith. Moreover, the prospects of a large standing independent German army outside of NATO command did not appeal to the rest of the nations in Western Europe. Adenauer himself rejected the proposal, saying the proposal amounted to a Soviet trick, although some Germans saw it as a legitimate offer. The Allies responded with a note of their own, asking Stalin to clarify certain points. A series of notes followed this and... Back and forth until Stalin stopped replying, either losing interest or believing that the Allies were not serious in negotiating a resolution. Meanwhile, the economy in East Germany faltered. The five year plans directed for Moscow were a failure. Over the long term, nationalization of the economy prolonged shortages and distorted market prices. Economic planners struggled with fis- fixing prices. Hyperinflation was also an issue as prices changed by the hour and people struggled to buy food and basic goods. Workers remained impoverished and wages fell until the people launched an uprising in 1953, which we will cover in another episode. Meanwhile, West Germany boomed. The new currency, the Marshall Plan aid, and large machine orders as a result of the Korean War revived the West German economy. In conclusion, both the Soviets and Allies were afraid that the fate of Germany would decide the fate of Europe, and thus the fate of the Cold War. So the safe bet was to keep their respective parts versus making a deal that might lose them the Cold War if they lost influence in Germany. The new divided Germany became a microcosm of the larger struggle. Both sides developed their societies in different ideological directions and became bitter foes. The West Germans, for example, refused to recognize East German government for the next 20 years and threatened to break ties with anyone who did. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 20, The Two Germanies. Check out our next episode on February the 1st, where we'll be examining the context of decolonization. How did Europe come to dominate the world? Why did European global dominance end? How did the process of decolonization tie into the Cold War? Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends into history but still want to help us, give us a positive review in iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word, 
Any donation size is accepted and appreciated. And if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.